warm welcome to you all. Hope you'll thoroughly enjoy our program. Britannia, a very British podcast about very British movies with just a hint of professionalism. Good morning, Scott, here with me at the end of a Skype line is Stephen. Good morning, mate. Hello, Matt. How are you doing? Fine. Thank you. Fine. It's been a while since we've actually really sort of spoken, isn't it? We were just talking off air. That... Without other interlopers, yes, interrupting yes. our, our flow of yeah. our personal contact. <laughs> that, me, and, me and you, time. Yeah, well, it's always welcome, you know, having guests and appearing on other shows. We've actually appeared on, you know, as, as guests on other people's podcasts over the last few months we have and that was uh, a a very generous invite and it was nice to reciprocate um, on on being able to do that um, with our our valued uh, friend there yeah so so in actual fact I mean this episode should be following the Robin and Marion episode which in reality we must have recorded two months ago I reckon well yes I remember back then how young I was (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think we sort of had a summer back then. There was, the, there was, you know, the faint glimpse of some sunshine back then. But now it's just turned into, well, as I said to you just a minute ago, it's it's like an October day out here. I've had to turn the lights on. Anyway, enough of this rubbish. Um, talk about what we've come in <laughs> onto for. a different kind of onto another. Yeah. Well, it's I far, mean, our review, our review, not the actual film. I was going to say this <laughs> film is far from rubbish. It's part of our Sean Connery tribute. It's the last in our Sean Connery tribute that's sort of covering across Real Britannia and the Stinking Paws podcast. Uh, Stinking Paws covered, of all things, Entrapment and The Hunt for Red October. We've looked at Robin and Marion and we thought, well, there's only one fitting way to, to pay tribute to the great man himself and it's to do a Bond film. And because we're doing them chronologically, we're doing them in sequence, this is number three... You actually weren't part of one and two, were you? I, I think I did those with Tony, didn't I? I did. I didn't do one, but I did two. Oh, you did. Did Rush with Love? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, but no, one was before um, my uh, arrival as mm. as a guest, and then uh, a more permanent fixture. You're a bit um, like a bit like Q. You know, you, 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 weren't, <laughs> there, you it, yeah. weren't there for the first yeah. one. Then you sort of find your feet on the second one, and then you get given a name in the third. one. <laughs> yeah, you get given a name and and a, and a bit more bounce. <laughs> Um, and been able to, uh, you know, have some some more lines and a bit of humour. Um, so yeah, <laughs> so you, I've so you say. I worked, worked my way in there, but I, I wasn't there for the first run. And um, yeah, we 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 are going through chronologically as mm. far as the, the films or the, the the films weren't done in the same order as what the books were, were released either. So no. that was a bit of an oddity too um but as far as the films go we're on to the third one and yeah, for it, us it's, that's it's, quite good isn't it the third in the sequence of movies because all the other 
series that we've taken on board. I think we've only hit three so far, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's three carry-ons that have been done. Three carry-ons, um, three Norman Wisdoms, three yeah. Bonds, one Mike Lee, I think, is the, is the sticking point. We're managing in some of them just once a year. Um, if not that, not even that. Sometimes with some That's of them, so. terrible batting average. Terrible. Which is which is why we're trying to do better with the hammers. Well, yeah, at, the, at this rate, uh, carry ons. We've got another thirty years to go. We worked out and, and, and twenty odd for the bonds. So who knows? We'll get round to them eventually. It's, there's no, there's no end point for this podcast. So you, mate. So you stuck with me for a couple of decades. Well, exactly. Then. This this was the whole point of us getting together. And, and chatting regularly on a Saturday or a Sunday morning because I wouldn't talk to you normally. I wouldn't want to, you know. No, <laughs> no. why should you be any different to anybody else? <laughs> so yeah, no, I'm looking forward to this. This is the, the start of something big for James Bond. It's Goldfinger. It's 1964. We'll be back after this. Stop. Look, he's gunning for trouble. Double O seven. It spells Bond. Shocking. He's the idol of every woman. Who are you? Bond. James Bond. The envy of every man. The nemesis of the treacherous Mr. Goldfinger. Goldfinger, a triumph in thrill-making cinema entertainment. The man with the mind. A three-time winner for Fleming's secret agent 007. My name is Pussy Galore. Isn't it customary to grant the condemned man his last request? You've asked for this. Come and purr over Honor Blackman as Pussy Galore. The female who is all feline. Also starring Gert Froper as Goldfinger. International cheat. International menace. Gentlemen! Goldfinger, why weren't we told the New York and the West Coast were in on this? Goldfinger, I made a delivery. Where is my money? And you owe me one million bucks. Goldfinger, the man with a finger in every pie. His goal, Fort Knox, the world's biggest bank. His enemy, 007, the world's wiliest, toughest gentleman agent with a license to kill. 007, it spells... Bond. James Bond, mixing business with girls and thrills girls and fun girls and danger the hotter the danger the cooler he takes it i think you've made your point goldfinger thank you for the demonstration choose your next witticism carefully mr bond it may be your last do you expect me to talk no mr bond i expect you goodbye
Goldfinger, released in the UK 1964, directed by Guy Hamilton, starring, of course, Sean Connery with Gert Frober, Honor Blackman, Shirley Eaton, Tanya Mallet, Harold Sakata, and of course it's Bernard Lee, Lois Maxwell. We've got Richard Vernon, Burke Quox in there, Desmond Llewellyn. This is a great cast list, mate, and I'm sure you've got some new additions to the Hall of Fame when we get round to it. The synopsis. British secret agent James Bond is tasked by the Bank of England and MI6 to investigate gold magnet Oric Goldfinger, who they suspect is building up a vast inventory of gold bars. At first, nothing seems all too special about the gold-obsessed tycoon, but after Bond gains knowledge of a secret scheme involving Goldfinger, which is about to be initiated, codenamed Operation Grand Slam, he realises that the fate of the entire Western economy may be at stake if the bullion dealer is not stopped. This is the turning point, mate. This is the one where it finds its feet and what I'm going to sort of suggest to you as we go forward, I think there's four key elements that make this one truly iconic and the the one that is most remembered and the one that sets it on the path to what we we sort of get in the future. Those four elements, I think, is the introduction of the new director in Guy Hamilton. Yeah. We get the establishment of another long-running character in the shape of Q in this. We'll have to talk about this because he's he's mentioned he does sort of appear in the other two, but this is the one where, you know, he's given his character, I believe. You've got the introduction of possibly the most famous movie car in the world after, say, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, which again was Ian Fleming, believe it or not. And the introduction of, like, the sinister henchman and possibly the most iconic henchman out of the whole series. I mean, there's four elements, I think, that actually add to what's been created over the last two there may be more but i think they're the four key ones and you know the introduction of shirley bassey and the opening sequences are really sort of establishing themselves as well i mean let's let's just park that to one side for the moment you know because it does yeah you you, you're right there's a number of elements the way it's it's either introducing or or coalescing from previous ones that they've decided that's going to be something that's going to continue so you're absolutely right this is is where the firm up the template yeah this is the one where those four five six elements get slotted into place into what's already been created and becomes you know what what we're used to over the next 50 years and this is mainly down to guy hamilton you know he he was the this is his first bond you know the previous two directed by terence young so he's got no investment on what was created previously so he's allowed a bit of leeway into you know what can happen and Richard Maybaum is brought in to do the script and the humour even though there was little elements of it in the first two this is the one where you get the one-liners to start with yeah it's not just from Bond with his you know some of his quips and double entendres and etc you know you you do have a little bit more from some of the other characters around him Q has one or two lines. There's the reference to, you know, ordering the amount of alcohol for three people, even though Bond's going to be on the plane on his own. You know, the reason why he hasn't checked in is, you know, it has to be either a girl or or, or booze. Um, <laughs> there is the humour and the one-liners that are, are thrown in there and, and by the, the, the villains as well. So, absolutely, this is where it comes in. And Guy Hamilton is, you know, is a great addition. You know, it does become a very frequent director for the Bond films, 
I can't remember how many. He, oh, it was about four eight he did in the end. Was or it something. eight in total? Yeah, I was going to say something, four or something, five, but it, yeah. something like that. But he obviously a, a you know respected director previous to to all of that because obviously he did the um, Alistair Sim Inspector Calls. Um, one of your favourite movies. Which is one of my favourite movies, and also one of my other favourites, James Mason film Touch of Larceny. He did those prior to to this, and then became a Bond director, which you know I think he he then got a bit pigeonholed. But um, certainly the films he brings in, including this one in the in the Bond franchise, are some of the the iconic ones that people look to as as what are their you know their favourite Bonds. Great to to have him on board at this point. And as you say, he doesn't have any legacy with the previous ones for him to hold on to. He's yep. got a, an open an open patch with regards to him deciding that that's not something he wants to continue with. It's not quite a blank page, is it? Because he has to obviously stick to some of the stuff that's been set up. But I think what he introduces just enhances those original elements and makes it as i say something that we know you know you know we come to know and love for example you know the opening sequence is like a mini movie all in itself isn't it i know we had that at the beginning of the other two but this one just goes that little step further i mean the beginning of from russia with love was the whole robert shaw creeping through the 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 grounds of the stately home isn't it you know trying to track down the guy that's disguised as bond so it was only like a couple of minutes in one location. This one, you know, you've you've got the underwater bit with the scuba diving thing with a gull on his head. You've got, you know, the setting up of the bombs. You've then got the bit in the nightclub and, and then the big fight afterwards. It's it's like five minutes of like a little mini movie. Which, you know, isn't directly related. It's tangentially perhaps, yeah. but not directly related to the actual film. It's almost like showing him on a, you know, a part of a different mission. Yep. To show that you know he's a a, a jobbing uh, agent, and it's not just a one-off that he's doing these things. It's a continual process. So it is like a mini movie, and it's good to to see in that sense. And it does set a precedent, I think, more so than it did previously. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to go through this scene by scene, but sticking with the beginning of the film, you get the person that is most associated with Bond themes apart from, say, Monty Norman or whatever, but Shirley Bassey for the first time, Goldfinger. John Barry is is doing the score for this, which, again, must have touched somewhere deep in your heart, mate, you know, fellow Yorkshireman, well, fellow from York. York, Yeah, from York itself, yeah. As I've mentioned before, I know his niece, but that's iconic, his contributions, again, um, with regards to to Bond and the, the, the franchise continually. So it's absolutely you know, great to, to have that continued because this is the point at which they could have decided to switch to somebody else mm-hmm. um, because it wasn't embedded that he was the um, composer. Um, after this, I don't think there was a lot of leeway to move away from him. I think he was, you know. He creates the Bond sound of the 60s, I think it's fair to say. Mm-hmm. Barry's pretty much known for more strings than brass am i right you know i I can i'm I'm hearing like the born free theme or you only live twice and it's very lush orchestral strings it is a bit more yeah yeah the sound i associate with connery's tenure as bond is is john barry so we get this iconic 
opening sequence, which is Margaret Nolan, isn't it? In in the title sequence, who we'll see literally yes. seconds afterwards, who sadly passed away last year, along with Tanya Mallet and Sean Connery, all sort of died in in within twelve months, didn't they? I think and this is like the the curse of Goldfinger in the last and, year. Or yeah, so. and and Anna Blackman wasn't that far off. No, that's true. She passed on as well. You know, <laughs> morbid. Let's let's keep away from that side of things. Let's talk about the. <laughs> <laughs> the more joyous elements of this movie but then we get and there's me saying we're not going to go through this in sequence but i'm running this film through my head at the moment uh we get the now expected m's office scene and the banter with m and with money penny and this has well become established now audience i think uh, audiences are looking out for this at this point yeah yeah and and particularly the admonishment from um, yes. Too many penny about dalliance with the customary gone. banter or every yeah. the customary something, and she's the one that throws the hat onto the hat stand in this one as well. Yes, <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. So they're trying to find ways to vary it up a bit. I mean, in later ones, we see them on the wreck of the is it the Queen Mary or something, isn't it? In, in one of them, they're underwater, and um, in others, they actually go out into into the field, don't they, to to meet Bond? So it isn't always set in that leather-panelled office, but in this one it is. So, you know, it's nice to see. And this leads us into the introduction of one of those elements, I think, that make this an iconic Bond and make it the start of the Bonds we know. Um, Q, Desmond Llewellyn. Dear old Desmond Llewellyn, right? Well, the quartermaster in the first one was known as Major Boothroyd. Yeah. Now, I believe Major Boothroyd is Q's name. He is playing the same character because... I think in The Spy Who Loved Me, Barbara Bach refers to him as Major Boothroyd at some point. But he's actually given the name Q. I think in the second one he was referred to as the Quartermaster. In this one he's given the name Q, just to sort yeah, of differentiate yeah. him and from the first one. Obviously, yeah, you know, Q, stand, obviously standing for Quartermaster. Yeah. Um, Major Boothroyd is what the actual given name of, of the, the personage um, but yeah, you obviously with M and Q and all that, it's it's the format um, for people to be going via the the code names. Um, yeah. But it is an introduction of him and and the gadgets and, and the, the gadgets, way that the, yeah. the gadgets are, are brought in, particularly with the car. I mean, I remember having the the ejector seat matchbox Corgi toy. I don't know yes, which I had that. You know the the way in which he is. It shows a geekiness over the actual um, toys as well, as it were. Bond's been a bit more jokey about them, and and he, you know, literally says that he doesn't joke about about his work to the point of also mentioning about wanting to get the can we have can we have these things back as well, um, which is you know, <laughs> which is a running is, gag throughout the whole yeah. whole series, isn't it? In in the novel, it was a DB three. Um, the, the Aston Martin DB3 had just sort of finished production. The DB5, if I remember reading somewhere, was introduced at the Old Court Motor Show the year before. So it's the brand new car, you know. So they're going to stick to, you know, what Fleming envisioned would have been Bond's car. And in the novel, it does have some adaptations, but nothing like what we see in the movie. I think it said it had reinforced bumpers, headlights that can change colour depending on what country they're in. Because do you remember back in, I don't know, the 60s or 70s, you used to have to buy yellow tints for your headlights if you were travelling abroad. Do you remember this? 
You probably weren't driving uh, back then. But... No, no, I wasn't. Uh, unlike yourself, I wasn't driving back yeah. in the 70s. Um, <laughs> I was being born instead. Um, and <laughs> I'm aware, though, that there were from my interest in classic motor cars with regard, mm. particularly regards to uh, vintage minis yes. um, that there was. I've, you know, I know about that um, as far as the tints that were, were necessary for driving abroad. And of course, in this, it's not the only only the tints that are necessary for changing abroad. He's got the swiveling number plate, which is changing for different places. Yep. Which apparently was inspired by the by somebody, director or writer or somebody um, getting a parking ticket and wishing they could have just you know, <laughs> just turn the number plate to around to avoid the parking ticket. But. Well, the the only gadget that's sort of mentioned, I think, is is the homing device is mentioned. Is, is part of the car's dashboard. But Fleming just highlights the fact that there was a, a specific place for him to hide a Colt 45, I think it said, and more hiding places that would... Was it enough hiding places that would keep customs worried for months or something? He said. Yeah. <laughs> so they've really taken this on board that, you know, a gadget-obsessed world, which it probably was in the early 60s, let, let's just give Q some, you know, some real sort of meaty gadgets to... That, that, that will well, go on, you know, and get more and more ridiculous in certain cases. But it, it does, and uh, but I think that was at the stage at which technology was becoming a bit more accessible to yeah. the to the average person with regards to gadgets in the home, um, and you know the the miniaturisation of things with you know microchips coming in and and stuff um, meant that there was more possibilities there for them to actually um, go further where okay there's a suspension of disbelief with bond stuff in general but um as far as pushing the envelope and going a bit further there was there was more that would be accepted by the viewers yeah um, with regards to these these gadgets and the things having having things in your watch for example or, or whatever or in, mm. in a pair of glasses or all these kind of things that start coming in not only does it become sort of accepted but it becomes expected um, there's a honest. space race as well don't forget round about mm. this sort of time so people were fully aware of new technologies and the progress that was being made so yeah it's, it's, it's a perfect addition to the the mythos of the bond you know the bond era um just wanted to point out i read somewhere guy hamilton was directly responsible for the development of q's character basically what happened desmond llewellyn was working at a desk, you know, in, in the scene. Bond comes in, he gets up to greet him, okay, and Hamilton said, no, this is James Bond, just ignore him. He's he's a, an inconvenience to you, right? This is what you said about bringing the stuff back, you know. It's, it's, yeah. He said, basically, you don't like him, you don't get on with him. And Desmond Wellen said, but this is Bond, it's the greatest sort of super spy in the world, you know. He said, I must admire him like everybody else does. And he says, no, no, you don't. He doesn't treat your gadgets with any respect at all. And from that point on, that relationship between Bond and Q is firmly cemented just through that one bit of direction that Guy Hamilton gave Desmond Llewellyn. They're on the same side, but they've got, you know, different views and, and they, don't, they don't see eye to eye. And it's not it's not that, you know, they hate each other, but it is that niggle that um, of, you know, Bond thinking that, that Q is far too obsessed with, you know, protocol and, and gadgets and making sure things are done by the book. And Q thinking that 
Bond is too freewheeling and disrespectful of, of you know the amount of time and energy that must go into these gadgets and he treats them as as toys yeah. Um, so yeah, you can understand that friction in a way without it being open animosity. There being the the friction there is what then is built upon and actually yeah. works throughout the franchise right up until the modern day. Yeah, yeah, this is it. And interesting as well that you said that the filmmakers have obviously taken note of what's going on in the world around them and sort of responding to technology and advances and things like that. As I said, the DB5 was a relatively new car. It was less than a year old. Tilly Masterson, you know, in the in the, the car chase scene in the Alps um, a little bit later on, she's driving a Ford Mustang. Again, that only came out that year. It was a brand new... You forget these things were new at some point. You know, the Mustang was a brand new car. Um, but then completely opposite to all of this, you get the Rolls-Royce. That Goldfinger himself is, is being driven about in by odd job, and you know that signifies, you know, great wealth. And each car is very specific to the characters, isn't it? The DB5 is what you expect Bond to be driving. The Mustang you expect Dilly Masterson to be driving, and you expect Goldfinger to be driven about in a dirty, great old roller. The cars are an extension of the character, yeah, in that sense, yeah, and uh, they're there to be an accessory to them to put across an, a, a reinforcement of the, of who they are and where they're coming from with their position in absolutely old world old British, modern, mm. British modernity and then mm. the sort of, you know, American hot flash um, is, you know, the different aspects. Let's talk about the villain. Let's talk about the villain. We've had prominent villain in the shape of Dr. No in the first one. In From Russia With Love, it was more Spectre, wasn't it? We get a glimpse of Blofeld and the whole of the organisation of Spectre, but there was no evil sort of like mastermind that we could really associate with. It was more uh, Robert Shaw, wasn't it, in the second one? It was the cat and mouse sort yes. of like battle between those two. Well, we get the henchman in the shape of Odd Job, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But in this one... Megalomania wants to take over the world, basically, and what a bizarre way of doing it. Yeah, and and, and having that idiosyncrasy or, or almost fetishism with regards to, to gold pushes the envelope with regards, not quite cartoonish, but the villain being not just um, a megalomaniac, not just your criminal mastermind that you would get in real life. It's, it's making them into a character that is, you know, this special kind of genius or, or evil that is so bad that they feel they need to do things in a, a certain idiosyncratic way. And, you know, obviously the, the, the way in which, you know, the, all the tie-ins there are throughout the film, including the name of Ulrich and um, Goldfinger, yeah. with, with that being the, the periodic table and, and Latinization of, of, of gold, the AU, and, and that yeah. being on the number plate of his car, and mm-hmm. him having a, a, you know, even when he's not wearing a, a gold tinted suit, he's, you know, he's in he's yellow. Wet, he's carried yellow, yeah, and the car being, being that colour as well. Even when he hasn't got that on, he's having to dress in an American general's uniform, he's still got a golden gun. Um, that's fact, true yeah and all the girls it, are wearing gold as well aren't they yeah you know? um and making sure that all the you know the pilots of the the stunt planes are all blondes and and stuff like this it's all it's all very much ties in together to to, the to color create, palette, yeah 
not as I say, not quite cartoonish, but but creating a, a an iconic villain that is somebody you would you know would be um, special as a mm. villain rather than just your run of the mill um, criminal that yeah. wouldn't be wouldn't be dealt with by somebody like like Bond. Well, according to the book, the book gives a little bit more background to him. He's one of the world's richest men, which we sort of get that from the, from the movie. Because it says he owns gold deposits, I think it's like Zurich, Amsterdam, Hong Kong. You know, it's all around the world. He just acquires gold, doesn't he? He's obsessed with it. But according to the novel, his father and his grandfather worked for Fabergé, okay? And they were jewellers. Well, the, the Fabergé were the jewellers, weren't they, to the imperial court in Russia. So, you yeah. know, the Fabergé eggs, which we'll see in Octopussy, funny enough. It says here, he was born in 1916. He emigrated to England from Riga, Lithuania, at the age of 21. By purchasing gold coins and jewellery for a chain of pawn shops, he amassed a fortune. So there's a bit of background to him that we don't get from here, but he's a British citizen, according to the novel, uh, and one of the richest men in the world. And he's just obsessed with gold, absolutely obsessed with it. And it's, it's highly believable that the gold bar that Connery is given by Richard Vernon. We haven't mentioned Richard Vernon, who works for the Bank of England. I love Richard Vernon, and to bring him into this this movie is quite great, actually. But it's it's, it's quite clear that he would be his interest would be piqued by a Nazi Nazi gold bar, wouldn't it? Because it is something a little bit special about you know the thing that he loves the most. Yeah, yeah, it's it's you know it's got that um, rarity. It's it's not just another cast of of some gold. It's a gold that's got some provenance in that sense, so he, he would be interested in it. You get a real insight into his character on the golf course. This is quite a famous scene, because is this... Uh, you might know, I'm, I'm not too sure. Isn't this where Sean Connery actually first played golf in real life, I think, was filming this movie, which led to his lifelong love of the game? I'm not 100% sure on that, but that's what I'm, I believe. Yeah. Um, from some years ago... There been some mention of that somewhere in in some interview or mm. something. Of I'm sure I've I've heard that. I may be proved wrong by his own biography, you know, yeah. autobiography or somebody otherwise. But that that's what I believe is true. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure this is where he first played the game and he loved it so much that you know that be, you know became his one of his favourite hobbies. And just the whole fact that he's so competitive as well. He cannot lose. He cannot bear losing anything, and will resort to any means. At his disposal to to try and win by cheating, basically, which is what he had over a game of golf. You know, were they playing for a shilling a hole or something? <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it's it's that level of you know that he's not willing to lose is why he was you know previously cheating at the cards because it was it's about the winning, not about winning fairly. As you know, I think it's not know, for the money. It's certainly not for the money, yeah. is it? That's um, the thing. No. Me and you are the type of people who, you know, there's no point in winning if you're not going to win fairly. Whereas he it shows the kind of character he is and that presents that to the to the viewer that, you know, cheating at cards by getting somebody to to look through binoculars and communicate through a earpiece what the cards of his opponent are and and this with the balls and but then of course Bond decides to play him at his own game in that respect when it's in the golf scenario with regards to, to switching balls. You've just mentioned something we sort of skimmed over. One of the most iconic scenes possibly in British movie history 
is the Shirley Eaton covered in the gold paint thing. We've completely yeah. skimmed over that. You know, there are so many iconic things in this, though. It's so iconic that it puts into the public consciousness that somebody could be have their skin covered and, and die from that, which medically isn't true. But it still pervades that that is that that is something that could happen if you if you covered your entire body with body paint then you could suffocate which <laughs> you don't breathe through your skin in that way but it is iconic and, and it, it pervades not just in in the public consciousness but also carries on in in other films where that was you know a repeated idea um it's used in a but, later bond isn't it with craig yeah yeah isn't it but, covered in yeah. oil yeah, I think it's, so, it's quantum it's, solace. It's, yeah, but it's it's absolutely iconic, and obviously, you know, that's that ties in with a lot of the advertising that was then used for the for the small amount of time she was in the film. You know, been on various magazine covers mm-hmm. and news articles and stuff like this. You know, covered in in gold that helped capture the imagination for promotional purposes. So it, that's again how it was instantly picked up upon uh, as being iconic. This is the the novel that is sort of ripe for exaggeration, I think. I think I read that somewhere, that where From Russia With Love was a straight-laced sort of like Cold War spy thriller, that luckily with the addition of people like Robert Shaw to, to bring that sort of, like we said, the cat and mouse element to it, that elevated a very bog-standard spy story into something else. This one, because... Goldfinger, we've got this background to him that Fleming has, you know, created. Odd job, we're going to talk about in a minute, is exactly how he was written in the book. You, you know, when when you think the budget for this was twice what From Russia with Love was, so they were allowed to. Well, I, I've actually heard that the the budget um, for this was the was more than the first two films combined. There you go. So you know they've got a bit of leeway here that they can really go to town. And don't forget, this is 1964. We spoke about this in the Dalek episode, didn't we, mate? That 64, Beatlemania, Dalek mania, Bond mania. All at the same time. Yeah. And it's difficult for those that didn't live through it to, to recognise or realise just how big this was. This was And massive. how that was the first time, really, that these kind of things were being done. Yeah. Now we're used to promotional stuff, especially with, you know since Star Wars, but there's merchandise for virtually everything now to the extent where you can you can buy I mean Eddie Stobart lorries for your kids <laughs> yep, um, and stuff like that. Whereas back then, that lunchboxes and and toys and etc. Well, the car, like you said, that, yeah, well, hadn't well. been done before. These three went and actually did it with the merchandising. Um, but well, it was brand re- new, and it, it was around this time, I think, as well, that um, you might remember this more than, more than me. It was when um, advertisers cottoned on to um, these kind of things because they started advertising cereal using cartoon characters and, and toys yeah, in it did. back around this time. So that was when advertising and promotion and merchandising really kicked in. And it, it is difficult for people to understand how. That was a, a sea change and just pervaded society really at the time. Yeah, round about this time, Bond clothing started. You know, licenses were being given for people to do official merchandise and things like the 007 shoe, which was nothing special. It was like a, a brogue or whatever, but it was licensed. You know, with with the Bond, you know, branding. And they reckon that at the time, people like Honor Blackman and Tanya Mallet, Shirley, were doing these fashion shoots in like 
Sunday magazines and Vogue and all of this lot. And within weeks, they reckon that there was a lot of gold-coloured dresses that suddenly flooded the market. It became the colour of the summer. I mean, I'm not into that sort of fashion side of things, but apparently that was... The headlines were like from the Avengers to the Golden Girl, you know, on the Blackman, you know, just recently left the Avengers. For this film, yeah. Yeah. And as we said, the DB5, everybody had that car, along with the Batmobile. You know, they all had those, you know, those little tied like James Bond suitcases with the plastic guns and holsters and stuff like that. And as you said, we always associate Star Wars as being the big money spinner for merchandise, but it was happening 10 years before, 15 years before with this. And again, the Dalek mania, we said as well, that was just incredible with the amount of, you know, merchandise that that produced along with the Beatles stuff. Incredible time, mate, 1964, absolutely. We've mentioned briefly Odd Job. This is another one of those elements, I think, that is the key, the key change here, that, yes, Robert Shaw was menacing. Odd Job, twice as menacing, mate, God's sake. Yeah, again, it's the, the same almost caricature element of, of, a, of a henchman. Yeah. Same as you later had with um, Jaws, Jaws um, and and those that you you know you, you had. Oh, the guy uh, with the, the claw in *Live and Let Die*. Yes, which were then you know obviously lampooned and taken off in in things like the Austin Powers mm. because they were so iconic and so recognisable as archetypes of henchmen. That's what that's what Bond did from this point onwards. They they had the the archetypal villains. Even in more modern times, you know, pre-modern times and stuff, they had um, them in there as well. Um, it, it it set the, the template for having, and, and the one that started it off is perhaps the most iconic one, um, arguably maybe maybe Jaws, but otherwise yeah. Odd Job, I think, is, is absolutely the most recognisable and iconic one. And, and the whole razor blade yeah. um, edged, oh, well. you know, throwing of, of the hat and stuff, um, it's his know, trademark, it's, yeah. It's, mm. Yeah, it's, it's trademarked and people, you know, instantly recognise that, you know. He sets the template, as you say, for a, a long line of menacing, sadistic, silent as well. You, you know, I always wondered why he never said anything and he grunted in this movie. He just goes, ah, ah, doesn't he, throughout the movie. And I'm thinking, well, surely he can, he can speak. According to the novel, he, he had a cleft palate. Did you know this? No, I didn't know Rock. that. I know in in the film, it's a um, Goldfinger said Goldfinger says he's um, he's a mute. Yeah. Um, but then he actually is, you know, making noises later on to direct where you know, saying, <laughs> I think it's ah, ah, that was and, it, yeah. and ah, ah for yeah. you know, and you're thinking, well, you're not mute then if you can make some noise. <laughs> that's not being mute. That's that. There's something a different word for that than mute. But. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't know he had a, a, a cleft palate in the, the the novel. There's a few things in the novel that are, um, I'm aware of a, a different um, in the film. Um, uh, not not just the the um, the climax of the film is slightly different, but also mm. I'm aware that Pussy Galore the character yes. um, was a lesbian in the book. Lesbian so that's cat burglars. That's why she wasn't open to to Bond's charms. They were. She didn't have the flying circus. She had a troop of cat burglars, lesbian mm. cat burglars, called the Cement Mixers. <laughs> yes, exactly. And <laughs> I'm trying 
I'm just trying to work my head around where the the, the pun or the the double entendre is with where, cement mixes and lesbianism, yeah. but I'm I'm not quite getting there There's yet. There's something there somewhere, but <laughs> <laughs> odd job is described in the book. Listen to this, right? In his tight, almost bursting black suit and farcical bowler hat, he looked rather like a Japanese wrestler on his day off. Which, uh, <laughs> which he, he was a wrestler. He was Korean, wasn't and he? It, I think it, wasn't it, he? Yeah, he, he was. He was, um, no, was. a Korean. Yeah, the character was Korean, but the actor was Japanese. Oh, was he? Oh, so Howard Sakata was Japanese. Okay, um, Japanese American, as far as I'm aware, and he was a wrestler. Um, by profession, I think, and this was a secondary strand to his right. earnings, so it kind of was on his days off. So they're not far off the mark, really. No. really and, and again, according to the book, our job was a karate expert who could shatter a fireplace mantle with a single kick and sever someone's neck with a flick of his metal rim bowler. He grunted rather than talked, which was the result of the cleft palate in the novel, and leapt, listen to this bit in the novel, he leapt with the grace of a ballet dancer. <laughs> <laughs> Cannot see Harold Sakata leaping anywhere, to be honest, right? Bond observed, listen to this, this is a great line. Bond observed, faced with such a man, one could only go down on one's knees and wait for death. How, how cool is that as a description of how menacing? And I think that transposes really well from the page to the screen. Yeah, I, I don't think that it was possible for them to show the, the balletic leaping uh, without CGI. Um, but otherwise, I think that they captured the other elements of him uh, with the the menace, yeah. um, the stoicism, and the the you know the, the potential for immediate death. Really, crushing a golf ball in his hands, you know, yeah, incredible. And it is, as I say, it sets the template for all of those long line of villains that we you know we know and love from now on. Um, Bond girls, we haven't spoken about the Bond girls. We spoke briefly about Honor Blackman, as we said, she left. The Avengers for this movie. You've got Shirley. Bit, bit of trivia on that. There was um, in later series of uh, the Avengers. Yeah. Um, Steed receives a postcard um, from her character um, sent from Fort Knox. Wow. <laughs> so an acknowledgement of, of you know what happened off camera. <laughs> See, this is another thing as well. This is very. Um, it, we haven't got the exotic locations of the Bahamas in Doctor No, or rattling through, like you know, the Cold War countries and Eastern Europe and of uh, that. The second one, this is American centralized, isn't it? And, and it's and it was pretty much intentional because Fort Knox and Kentucky do appear in the novel, but this was the perfect choice because this was the one. Even though Bond was successful in America, they really wanted to push it with this one. Um, and having the American locations, I think, helped. You know, we have Miami, don't we, in Kentucky, and uh, and and boosting up a little bit the the number of lines delivered by the um, CIA agents as well. Felix Leiter. We haven't mentioned Felix. Three movies. Mm. I think this is the third different. It was Felix in the second one. I can't remember. Yeah, I think so. Was he in the second? Because in the first one, it's Jack Lord, isn't it, from Hawaii Five O? Yeah, it's a, it, there's. Um, they basically got into a trope of, of pretty much having a different actor play him each time. And until um, yeah, until I think there was one, maybe two actors that played him twice. But otherwise, he's always been played by a different actor in every. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even like they, they just changed him just when Bond changed. They, they changed virtually every time he appeared. He was played by a different. Oh, yeah, there, there um, was actor. 
David, I can't remember his surname, that was right through the Bond era, through the Bond era, through the Roger Moore era, from Live and Let Die, I think. And then he's the one in the Timothy Dalton one who gets his legs bitten off by the shark. Uh, Licence to Kill. He's still the same guy. He's at the wedding. It's the wedding in the Bahamas. He's it's still the same Felix in that. He, uh, David, I can't remember his surname, but he carried on through quite a few. But yeah, this is Cecil Linder, I think. He's, I can't remember. Cecil something. Um, yeah. But yeah, so he's sort of like an almost recurring character. He's not in every single movie, Felix Leiter, but needed to be brought into this one because it is set in America. We get the introduction of the the, the mafia, the warring families as well, which does make an appearance in later Bond movies again, if I remember rightly. There's a bit of that influence in something like Diamonds of Forever. Yeah. And the whole, away from the location shoots, the studio stuff, Ken Adam, mate, you know, the guy that did uh, the war room in Doctor Strangelove, he designed pretty much most of this early Bond stuff, and they are fantastic. Even, you know, the obvious one is Goldfinger's house in Kentucky where the pool table turns over to become Fort Knox and all the blinds come down and, you know, the screens go up, which which is what we expect from a villain. You've also got the scene with the laser. No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die, which, again, iconic. That which was originally meant to be a, a circular saw, but they decided to gadgets. put the technology and gadget it and, and yeah. capture them, as you say, the space race era. Yeah, yeah, gadgets again. And all these sets, and even what you think might be quite a mundane set, but that was the scene near the beginning where they're eating eating dinner, you know, and, and this was talking about the very indifferent brandy and, you know, Richard Vernon's. Even that set looked fantastic, you know, and it's yeah. Ken Adam was a genius, mate, when it came to things like that. And he got a great acclaim for the way he'd reproduced Fort Knox, despite it being very much hush-hush and under wraps about what exactly... It's a bit difficult to find out what Fort Knox is like, um, deliberately so, you know. Um, but he apparently had great acclaim and was was complimented on on the way he captured captured it. Apparently, yeah, um, it was very accurate. Apparently, without him realizing, wasn't it, or something? Isn't yeah, it? yeah. So again, one of the unsung heroes. You know, we speak about John Barry and Ken Adam, and, and, and the directors and all these backroom boys are all you know an essential part of this 50, 60 year history. You know, it's an incredible legacy. And and as I say, we we can't emphasize this is enough this is where it really starts this is the one the first two are brilliant but the first two are a warm-up i think for this one which then leads on to you know the snowball effect mate their establishment uh establishing sorry films that are, are nailing down some of the elements or trying out elements that they then don't carry on with um but it becomes not not in a this is not a, a, a throwing any negativity, but it becomes more formulaic after this, taking these elements and repeating the success with, you know, ticking the boxes of having the, the, the henchmen or the gadgets or, or the, the one-liners. It's, it's, it's recognisably Bond from that point onwards. Yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. I mean, this for years, I mean, where, where does this sit in your, in your favourite Bond movies? Because I'll tell you where it is in mine. It's near the top. Yeah. Yeah. I've always had difficulty trying to nail down which is my exact favourite, to be fair. This is exactly it. Yeah. It depends upon, upon mood. Top, um, top three? But no, it's, it, it is near the top, and, and partly because of the fact that it does 
I do like some of us for for other reasons. For much of we love, I liked the darker elements that they were they were yeah. trying out in that. But I you know, recognise that wasn't as as commercial. Um, but this being the establishing one that the rest then follow the pattern of, um, it's got to absolutely be up there. For me, for years, I always said that You Only Live Twice was my favourite because that was the one for me that just epitomised all these elements that we've just been speaking about. You know, you had Crazy Megalomaniac with an underground lair, you know, and great special effects. The Space Race again was brought into that one. You know, Donald Pleasance is brilliant in that as Donald... um, as Blofeld. Blimey, I forgot his name then for a second. And... You know, and the cars and the gadgets and all that, like little Nelly, you know, all that. I used to think, oh, that was the great, you know, the great one. As I've got older, I think I'm leaning more towards Goldfinger. And it's difficult, as you say, it's it's top three, depending on where your mood is for me. Because sometimes I'll fancy watching a Roger Moore one and I'll be like, oh, yeah, well, Spyro loved me. Great, my favourite one, just because I watched it. Or, you know, one of the Timothy Dalton ones, I love Licence to Kill. but it's one of those rotating top threes, I think, mate. That it's, it's, it's always been up there, and quite rightly so, I think. I think it's a lot of people's favourite, with a lot of people's favourite Bond. Yeah, and as I say, because it, it nails down the elements, it, it might not have, at the time, settled into that position for people, because it was then, became the first that brought all the elements together and established the, them to then be run with. Um, it can be looked back upon as being the first proper bond in some respects. Yeah, no, this is the beginning. This is the beginning of what we used to. Um, and quite sadly, I think didn't Ian Fleming literally died months before its release, didn't he? So he wasn't about to mm, see. Yeah, I successful. believe he visited the set as he had done with the previous ones, but he died before this was released. Now, whether he actually had a pre-release viewing of it or not, I wouldn't be able to say. But yeah, yeah I did. In my recollection, I think he died shortly it was a month, before it was actually publicly released. A month yeah. before the premiere, mate, it was, yeah. yeah. Okay, that's Goldfinger, 1964. Obviously, we are going to continue through the Bond series, mate. So it means Thunderball is going to be next. Yes, yes. And, you know, we'll see how many more people rack up appearances for the, uh, oh. the Hall of Fame than we've got in, in this one because... You know, there's there's some people who um, have already been repeat appearances um, from previous bonds, and they will carry on doing so. I would I would um, expect because there's some people who become almost like the stock cast for background characters in in Bond films. Is that your gentle way of reminding me? I've forgotten to mention the Hall of Fame. <laughs> possibly, you might say that. I can possibly comment. Get your keys. Let's get in there quick. Hall of Fame <laughs> which is really really bad of me because Stephen puts in so much effort week in week out 
in keeping this blooming thing up to date and I have completely glossed over it. I am so sorry, my friend. Please tell us <laughs> who's in the Hall of Fame and who's... Well, I'll just do your thing. <laughs> well, yeah, as I said, there's a few people who are making fresh appearances here when they've appeared previously. Now, because there are 13 people making their second appearances, mm. um, I'll to some extent gloss over yeah, yeah. those because you no need to list every individual one of them. Um, although... Um, mentioned that this is the second appearance for, for on a Blackman show, so she's on her way oh, okay. um, through. Thankfully, in in that sense, um, so we can expect her to to pop back in again at some point. Yep. Um, because and as you mentioned, uh, Richard Vernon, um, yes. this is his second as well, but he'll be appearing again, particularly with with Bonds. I suspect. Oh, I love Richard um, Vernon. Yeah. So, so that's useful as well. We do actually have seven people making their entrances into the actual Hall of Fame with regards to third appearances. Oh, excellent, seven. Okay. Uh, we've got Victor Brooks, who was previously in Sapphire and Night to Remember. Mm-hmm. Anthony Chin, who was in uh, yes. Man of the Moment and uh, Dr. No. Yeah, recognised um, him in the background, yep. Uh, Michael Collins, Price to Arms and Violent Playground. Mick Dillon, who was in Doctor Who and How I Won the War. Okay, uh, I don't know any of these people, but yep, carry on. No. <laughs> Joseph Tregonino yeah. uh, was in The Rebel and in Sweeney. So this is a bit of a, a, a broad spectrum of films he's been in there, I yeah, suppose. Yeah, wow. Okay. Um, Nicky Van Der Zyl, who <laughs> yep. previously... Um, done i think it's mostly voice work dubbing work that she does on on bond films really uh did from russia with love and dr no oh. uh, and we also have the entrance into the actual hall of fame as far as free appearances from uh mr harry phipps ah, no relation, I've, <laughs> no got relation. A, I've got a nephew <laughs> called that but <laughs> yeah um who was previously in police uh, and heavens above ah. Um, so your namesake uh, oh, is in there. Oh, if only, if uh, only, yes. If, if only it was somebody who was part of your family, that would be very nice for you. Yeah. There are two people making their fourth appearances, which is Paul Berardi and Bob Simmons. He's the stuntman. Um, so, Bob Simmons yeah, but, is the stuntman. And yeah. before you carry on, sorry, I don't know if this is him or not. Is Bob Simmons the guy at the beginning in the gun barrel or is it Sean Connery? Because he He's did in the gun barrel. It yeah. is him, isn't it? Okay. Yeah. Famous, famous stuntman on the series. That's it. Bob Previously yeah. in Doctor No, Russia with Love, and um, obviously, as with virtually everybody else ever, was in Night to Remember. Um, <laughs> of course he was. Probably jumping, <laughs> jumping off the side, probably. Who, who wasn't? Yeah. Uh, we do have four people making their fifth appearances. Brilliant. I knew there'd be a few in this because, um, well, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna embarrass myself any further by throwing some names out, but I've got an idea. Cool. <laughs> Uh, well, there's the the obvious names like uh, Shirley Eaton. Ah, that was the one. Uh, okay. <laughs> so we we recognise her. Um, Desmond Willowenen, brilliant uh, as well. Yeah. Lois Maxwell. So she's uh, made her, her way in as well. But it's not just Bond movies, is it? That's the thing, because this is a fifth appearance. So she's, yes, she's appeared twice uh, before. Lois Maxwell was also in Lolita uh, and A Matter of Life and Death. There we go. Uh, you know, and Desmond Willowenen was obviously in uh, Lavender Hill Mob and Sapphire. Previously, wasn't so, he also in Night to Remember? Isn't it? Remember that thing we said about Night to Remember, where all the cues appeared. 
might well be right, actually. I'm, I, I think we might need to go back and check I that. I need to double-check that one. Because yes. Alec, Alec McCowan, Desmond Llewellyn, and the guy that plays Major Boothroyd in the first one, all in Night to Remember, and they all play Q. He was, yes. He's the radio um, operator or the purser or something, I'm sure he is. We might have to go back and yeah, double-check I on think, that. Yeah, yeah, you're right on that one. Mm. So, yeah, and the other person who... Um, as their fifth appearance is uh, George Leach. Famous George Leach. What's George Famous Leach? George Leach, who was in Private Progress, Doctor No, uh, A Night to Remember, and Eagle Has Landed, which is the very first, <laughs> first one that, we, that we had on this. Uh, and one person with their sixth appearance, which is Bernard Lee. Brilliant. Uh, yep, I love, we love Bernard Lee. More yeah. recently in The Third Man, but also Whistle Down the Wind and Dunkirk, as well as the previous yes. two Bonds that we did. Yep. And we've got um, somebody making their seventh appearance, um, and be no surprise that that is Mr. Sean Connery. Is it seven um, now? He started off slow, yeah. didn't he? He's, he's picked he did, up pace. Yeah. But uh, Doctor No, and then Hell Drivers, and then Time Bandits, uh, Man Who Would Be King from Wish You Were Love, and then uh, obviously Robin and Marion. Very respectable seven. So him, he's got yeah. a re- very respectable seven. Mm-hmm. Although he uh, he is beaten by um, somebody who has their ninth appearance. <laughs> So snapping uh, at the heels of Victor Harrington and Marianne Stone. It's and, none of them, no. It's somebody yeah. called Patrick Halpin. <laughs> okay, Patrick Halpin. <laughs> who was previously in uh, The Man Who Never Was, Gideon's Day, One Good Turn, The Rebel, uh, Doctor in the House, Ten Rillington Place, Admiral, Admiral Crichton, <laughs> and Night to Remember. Do we know who he played in this? I'm going to have to have a look. Patrick Halpin. So I'm wondering if he had a speaking part or not. Patrick Halpin, hotel guest, uncredited. <laughs> of course he is. <laughs> it's like I just so, noticed that one of the ones you mentioned earlier was is credited as man in bulletproof vest in Q's laboratory. The bloke who gets shot. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's amazing. There's a lot of crossover with people appearing, and you know, a lot of them in in the previous Bond films, but then a lot of them that also appeared in obviously Night to Remember, and then things like Dunkirk or yeah. um, the, or Lolita even. So there's a, a a broad spectrum in there uh, of, of the other films. Hmm, I'm surprised we haven't had Margaret Nolan yet. She must have been number two, a second appearance. Uh, yes, I believe so. She may be a little bit later on because she appears in later carry-ons and comedies and things like that yeah. in the late sixties, doesn't she? So we possibly haven't covered anything too much with Margaret Nolan in it. But she'll get there, same as you know. This is the first for us with Guy Hamilton, the director, but yeah. um, he will suddenly be racking up any number. Oh yeah. Uh, at a certain point, he will, um, you know, be be in the special annex for people who, who've, who've had 10 appearances or whatever. So, Well, Ken Adam um, and, and John Barry need to be included in there as well, mate, don't they? So, Well, this is it. John Barry, you know, with his his, his fifth appearance, I believe, um, John that, Barry. Oh, I thought it was um, more, yeah. Mm. Because he did Robin and uh, Marion previously as well, and um, the Ipcrest file as well. Yeah. He's yeah. involved in that. So this is, you know... Again. He'll be up there. He'll be way up there before long, mate. We can guarantee that. That's one thing we're sure of. Yeah. 
So yes, it's quite a, a few in there, particularly those um, coming in, the seven of them that are coming in for their third <laughs> third appearances. Bulging uh, at the um, seams. It is, yeah. It's good that the, the hall is actually imaginary, otherwise we won't be able to fit them all in. Well, uh, upon... Unless we miniaturise them with some special gadget that Q had invented. Inv- yes. Well, ap- apologies for nearly skimming over that today. <laughs> As I said before, so rudely interrupted by the Village Hall of Fame, <laughs> <laughs> that's been Goldfinger. It'll be Thunderball next. I'm which, quite... it, which it shouldn't have been, but it is. It was supposed to be a Majesty's Secret Service, wasn't it? I think it was the original it, it, plan. It was. That's what they originally advertised yeah. at the end, because they, they started doing that um, Bond will return in. Yeah. Um, but because they couldn't get it done, um, they ended up... I mean, this was... I, I believe that Goldfinger wasn't due to be done. It was some because there was some court case going on with regards to to Thunderball, um, wasn't it? Was the the problem? Yeah. One, wasn't it with the script? Wasn't it the guy that was brought in because he still retained the rights to it, didn't he? Yeah. So so Goldfinger wasn't you know meant to have been when it was, but I'm glad it did. Oh, so yeah. yeah. So that so the you know the the sequencing is 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 fluid, <laughs> but we do know that the next one that actually was released. And that'll be what we'll um, be reviewing next. Hopefully not too far away, not so much of a gap in between. Um, Thunderball, I think there's mixed opinions on Thunderball, but I actually quite like it. It's one of my favourites, Thunderball. I do enjoy Thunderball, so looking forward to that. Tell you what, let's take a break and we'll have a little chat about what's coming up next time. Oh, it's head, it's day, I'm afraid. But it's never let me down. M's orders, 007. You'll be using this Aston Martin DB5 with modifications. Now, pay attention, please. Windscreen bulletproof. That's on the side and the rear windows. Revolving number plates, naturally. Valid all countries. Here's a nice little transmitting device called a Homer. You prime it by pressing that back like this. You see? The smaller model is now standard field issue, to be fitted into the heel of your shoe. Its larger brother is magnetic. Right. To be concealed in the car you're trailing while you keep out of sight. Reception. On the dashboard here. Auto visual range 150 miles. Ingenious and useful too. Allow a man to stop off for a quick one en route. It has not been perfected out of years of patient research entirely for that purpose, 007. And incidentally, we'd appreciate its return, along with all your other equipment. Intact for once when you return from the field. Oh, you'd be surprised the amount of wear and tear that goes on out there in the field. Anything else? Well, I won't keep it for more than an hour or so, if you give me your undivided attention. We've installed some rather interesting modifications. 
You see this arm here? Now open the top and inside are your defense mechanism controls. Smoke screen, oil slick, rear bulletproof screen, and left and right front wing machine guns. Now this one I'm particularly keen about. You see the gear lever here? Now if you take the top off, you'll find a little red button. Whatever you do, don't touch it. No, why not? Because you'll release this section of the roof and engage and fire the passenger ejector seat. Ejector seat? You're joking. I never joke about my work, 007. Okay, Stephen, episode 106 should in theory be our next episode. And as we made this sort of arrangement that the Hammer Horrors are going to continue every five episodes, that means we're going to welcome back our dear friend Mark from the Good, the Bad and the Odd podcast, who's going to join us for the second in our Hammer Horrors. It's back to 1956. It's X the Unknown, which features an appearance by Edward Chapman, better known as Mr. Grimsdale. Yeah. Leo McKern, Anthony Newley. The American influence is Mr. Dean Jagger. He's going to be in there. Have you seen this? I don't think I have. I I think I've, you know, I've seen snippets of it, but mm. I don't, I'm, I'm pretty damn sure that I've not seen it in its entirety. Okay, the synopsis, just to give us a bit of a a reminder, just to see if you have seen it. This doesn't sound too familiar. British Army radiation drills at a remote Scottish base attract a subterranean radioactive entity of unknown nature that vanishes, leaving two severely radiation-burned soldiers and a bottomless crack in the earth. Others who meet the thing in the night suffer likewise and with increasing severity. It seems to be able to absorb radiation from any source growing bigger and bigger. What is it? How do you destroy a thing that feeds on energy? I'm looking forward to that, because I loved the, the Quatermass one that we did. How do you destroy something that feeds on energy? That's a question I've asked with some of my exes. Uh, <laughs> feeds on your so, soul. <laughs> yeah, it just drains. Um, no, I, I mean, that synopsis doesn't sound familiar to me, so I definitely haven't seen um, in its entirety. Um, there might be the odd scene or snippet of a scene that might go oh actually i've seen that somewhere um but no uh, it'll be a a brand new watch for me essentially and um it'll be good to then go through it afterwards and review with with mark because um his knowledge and expertise on it and what he brings to the podcast um it is is great we, 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 we need him. We blooming need well, him. Well, you know, it's like when we have Anthony on with, you know, with um, what he brings to the yes. table. It covers the cracks as, as of our deficiencies. So, <laughs> exactly. Um, we can then, you know, hang off their coattails and pretend that we know what we're talking about oh. by agreeing with them. We just take the glory, mate, at the end of the day. 
that's what we do. That's what I do with you. We do it anyway. so well, yes. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sort of two stages down from taking the glory now. Cause, you know. Looking forward to it. I, I think as the more we go into the hammers as well, this is going to be, you know, because the next one after that is quite a mess too. And then, you know, it won't be long. I think it's the Curse of Frankenstein is the one after that. So we're, we're into Peter Cushing territory already, you know. So. Which I believe Curse of Frankenstein was that on? Television last night on television. I think it might have been the horror of Frankenstein was on last night, which is right. Dave Prowse, I think, which is a later yes. one. Yes, yes, it was actually. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that's been James Bond. Really enjoyed that today, mate. Thanks for talking all things 007 with me. I'll see you very soon. Cheers, mate. Take care. Take care. Bon voyage. Good luck. Thank you. Hand up, sir. I'm sick of pain. <laughs>